Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Peter Schwanda, and I'm a pastoral associate. And as was mentioned, today is the first Sunday in Advent, which is the beginning of a new church year. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, Happy New Year. Now, lest, lest we fast forward our calendar too quickly, Advent is also the beginning of a four-week season prior to Christmas where we anticipate the long-expected coming of Christ. We recognize and mourn the darkness that we see in our world, and we wait with expectation for Christ's return. Advent is also the beginning of the church calendar year where we begin the retelling of the story of God's revelation and redemption. It's a story that in a liturgical church, we cycle through every year. My cousin works as a creative director for Vineyard Vines, and I was talking to him this past week, and he said, well, it's it's kind of busy. He oversees all digital media marketing, and he was at our house on Black Friday, and he said, well, it's it's just been a busy few weeks of, of preparation. I said, just a few weeks, he said, well, no, we really began the Christmas push in January. And I thought, wow. And then I thought, well, really, as Christians, we're preparing and telling the story that we anticipate all year long as well. And we also have a season where we especially focus and anticipate the coming of Christ. So it's the beginning of the new year, the beginning of the retelling of the story, and the beginning of Advent. In Advent, it's like we are actors in a two-act play, and we've rehearsed the first act. We know how it ends with the climax of God's arrival, yet we also anticipate what comes next. Next, A second act that we have some familiarity with, but we don't really know what will happen when the curtain closes on the first act and opens on the second. During Advent this year, The lectionary readings bring us through visions from the prophet Isaiah, and he gives us these powerful word pictures, many of which are evocative, memorable, sometimes startling. You're likely familiar with some of them. Swords into plowshares, a shoot from a stump, streams in the desert, a virgin with child. These are images of the coming Messiah, images of who he is and what he will do. And they're all the more powerful when you consider that these were images that Isaiah was giving to people that he described as walking in darkness, as dwelling in a land of deep darkness. Now, as a kid growing up in southeastern Maine, I was often complaining to my mom during the long winter months that there wasn't enough daylight after school. Maine sticks out into the Atlantic time zone. Every few years, they consider joining the Atlantic time zone and then, of course, realized that would be a horrible idea for business, and they revert to the Eastern time zone. But it got dark too early. I'll admit I still get a little bit down when we cash in our daylight savings every November. But I really shouldn't complain because there's a town, Utkiavik in northern Alaska, where the sun set last week, and it won't rise again until well after Christmas. It's the northernmost town in Alaska, and they will have 65 days no sunrise, no sunset. 
But it's interesting. It isn't completely dark, which is what I thought growing up, that if you got far enough north, the sun would just never rise, there would be no light, total darkness. Instead, they have a few hours each day where they say that there's just enough light to make out objects. And they call this civil twilight, as if God was polite enough, will give you just enough light so you won't trip. I think that Isaiah could relate. He was living at a time where he described the darkness of Israel's sin and rebellion. He talked about the people turning from God, and he described them as a faintly burning wick. It was as if their faith has just gone out. I think there's times that we can relate as well, when our world seems so filled with darkness that it's hard to make out the object of our faith, hard to see Jesus at work. And yet these passages in Isaiah give hope. Isaiah says, the Lord has a day in store. A day will come because our God is a God who comes to his people. That's actually what the word Advent means, coming, from Latin ad venir, to come. It's a verb. See, scripture is full of these comings, of these arrivals where God comes and then promises again and again that he will come. As Numbers 23 says, God is not a human being that he should lie, nor a mortal that he should change his mind. Has he promised and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill? God's promises are good and true. And so in our civil twilight of existence, Isaiah shines a dramatic spotlight on four images in our passage this morning. And when we read these passages from the prophets, from Isaiah, we should find ourselves asking the question, when will this happen? Did this happen? We're in good company when we ask questions like that. Scripture is full of questions like this. How long do we have to wait? When does construction begin? When will you restore Israel? I would think in this congregation, as we are in pilgrimage, you might often find yourself asking those questions. But Isaiah, as a prophet, looks at the past, at the present, and the future through a different lens. And he sees the reality of God's reality, the reality of who God is and what God has promised. And he declares them to the people. So when we ask the questions, did this happen already? Is it happening now? Will it happen in the distant future? The answer is yes. And of course, it's much more than just that. But it's yes, because God has come, God is coming, and God will come again. So let's turn to these four images that Isaiah gives us in our our reading this morning. Pictures of God revealing part of his truth that will be the full reality when Jesus comes again. Emily Dickinson writes, the truth must, must dazzle us gradually or every man would go blind. And I think these prophetic images are just that. They're a dazzling light that we can turn to and have a picture of the radiance of God which might blind us if we saw it completely. So our first image in our passage is a mountain rising up. Now, if you go out to Shenandoah and you drive along uh, Skyline Drive, that's not the image that Isaiah is picturing. It's not of a ridgeline with many peaks where it's hard to tell which peak is the highest. It's much more akin to Mount Rainier from the vantage point of Seattle, where you have a lone, dramatic peak that almost seems to have motion rising up above the plains. 
For the Israelites, and I think for us too, mountains hold a special place. We consider them what the Celtic theologians would call thin places, places where heaven and earth seem to meet. But it's interesting, in Jerusalem, if you have been there, the Temple Mount isn't actually on the highest point. The Mount of Olives is higher. And it becomes clear that what this passage is talking about is symbolic and not literal. The mountain will be the mountain. It will be the most exalted. It will be the mountain of truth. No longer will people worship in other high places. They will come to God's mountain, which symbolizes his coming kingdom. So when we ask our questions, has this happened? Consider the writer of Philippians who writes, therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place. Consider, is it happening now? I think when we lift high the name of God in worship, it does. And consider the words of John when we think about whether it will happen in the future. He writes with Jesus' words, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Our second image, perhaps my favorite of the bunch, a river flowing uphill. Now, it's easy to miss it, but when you realize in verse 2, it says that the mountain of the house of the Lord be established as the highest of the mountains, and the nations shall flow to it. The word in Hebrew for flow is uh, related to the root word for river. So the picture is of a river flowing up the mountain. And this should be startling since we know that water flows downhill with gravity. And for Israel, by similar logic, they knew that everybody who comes to God was one of their own. They were Jewish. And so Isaiah's point is that God will be worshipped by all nations and many people. He's breaking the Israelite logic. And so if we think about whether or not this has happened, consider all the languages and ethnic contexts in which the gospel has come. Consider now our missionary partner in Kenya. Consider the growth of the church in the majority world in the Southern Hemisphere. And so we join our voices with the same Gentiles that Isaiah gives voice to in verse 2, saying, come, let us go up to the Lord. And we look towards the future and the vision of Revelation that tells us people from every nation, tribe, people, and language will be part of the great multitude before God's eternal throne. I think it will be a diverse crowd. Our third image, as we look to verse, the end of verse 3, is that God's word will travel. It will go forth. Just as people flow to God, God's word will also flow out to people. And the source will be Zion, the source of truth, making clear that there is just one way to salvation. God declares by revealing himself that there is no life apart from his revelation. And because he's the source of life, we should do as Isaiah suggests, seeking to be taught, seeking to be corrected, seeking to be judged, instructed, We should want God's word to settle our disputes and our disagreements. We should want God's word to be a light that guides our path. Think about how this has happened as the gospel spread from Pentecost, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Samaria, to the Gentiles, and to all the ends of the known world. Consider how it happens as we turn to God's word in our daily lives. 
and consider that it will continue to happen as God's word goes out, because God, as it says in 2 Peter, does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and life in him. Our fourth image is perhaps the most dramatic. Swords will be beaten into plowshares, and spears will be beaten into pruning hooks. Now, this is not a case of using one tool for a purpose that it wasn't designed for. This isn't taking the broom and reaching up into the corner and dusting the cobwebs. This is a dramatic repurposing. Probably would have involved a blacksmith, a beating, a reshaping, a repurposing of tools that were meant for violence, tools that were meant for war, tools that were wielded by the powerful. And instead, they'll be used to provide for basic needs. They're the tools of planting, the plow, and of harvesting, the pruning hook. If you're not sure what a pruning hook is, it's a long-handled hook at the end that they would reach up and harvest uh, from a tree or vine. So we have these pictures of violence that have been transformed into pictures of provision. And I think it's natural, especially in our age, to ask, well, when will this happen? And I think we can consider that Jesus similarly took an implement of violence, the cross, and brought peace between God and humanity. And, as our Psalm 122 suggests, we can pray for God's peace, for a time when conflicts will cease, and for war is not a part of our reality or our political situation. See, for Isaiah, war and conflict, especially between nations, was his reality. He lived at a time of political upheaval. There were four different kings that reigned during his lifetime. And constantly on the horizon was the allure of making alliances, political and military, in order to keep the nation of Israel from being invaded, to avoid catastrophe. See, the people assumed that because they hadn't been invaded, God must be on their side, but they didn't pay attention to the warning signs that Isaiah and the prophets gave. One commentator sums up, he says, the best way to summarize Isaiah's message to the people was, get real. Live in light of God's reality. And I think that's good advice for us during Advent. We're to live into who we are created to be, waiting for the advent, for the arrival of our eternal home. Because we are pilgrims. We're pilgrims who have glimpses, glimpses from Isaiah, from the other prophets, of the home for which we are created. Turn with me back to Psalm 122, which we read in unison. This is one of a handful of psalms in the Psalter that are called Songs of Ascent. They're pilgrim songs. They're ones that were sung by worshipers who were making a pilgrimage for a festival traveling to Jerusalem. It seems that this psalm is written by a pilgrim who's actually on his way back home. He's had a glimpse of the glory of the Lord during his visit to Jerusalem, during his worship at the temple. And now he looks back, perhaps wistfully, at Jerusalem, determined not to forget what he has seen, determined to seek God's good. 
Similarly, let us not forget what we've seen in Isaiah this morning. That God is to be worshipped, that God draws people to himself, that we are to learn his word, that we're to walk in his ways, that we're to live lives of grace and nonviolence, and that we're to practice a transforming love that exchanges things which cause death for that which leads to life. God promised to come, and he did. God promises to come, and he will. And God wants us to come to him, and we should. God has come. God keeps coming. God will come again. Amen.